right. Thank you so much. And I praise God for seeing so many wonderful faces here today. Um, my last sermon I preached, it was only to four people. So this is a blessing indeed to see so many faces, you know. I'm <laughs> um, just give you a brief introduction here of myself. If you're not familiar with me, my name is John Lewis. I'm one of the Americans in the Mile One Mission team. I'm originally from Biloxi, Mississippi. That's down on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico there. I've been with Mile One Mission for two and a half years now. This is my third time preaching for Calvary. Um, I'm a military veteran, retired police officer, and I was called into ministry. Just, uh, I just consider it such a wonderful privilege to be able to share the Bible and to share faith and the gospel message with the world. It, it just, it's the greatest thing that can ever, a person can ever have, and I want to share that blessing with the world. And today I'm going to start by sharing a story with you. Uh, it was from my old military days. This is over, well over 30 years ago. Um, when I was in the military, early in my career, I was assigned to the transportation squadron. I was a vehicle operator, and that's uh, somebody who's basically a, a glorified truck and bus driver. And um, I was stationed uh, at my first base was in Minot, North Dakota. It was a strategic air command base at the time. There was extremely tight security, and there was also strict accountability for everything we did. So anytime we went off the base, we had to fill out this little square card, and it was basically a trip card. And this little card had a lot of information on it. It had our name, our rank, our vehicle registration, the destination we were going to, how much fuel we had, our mileage, date, time, when we were expected to return, um, and just any information about our trip. We all had to put it on this little card. And we had to take this card to our dispatch center uh, where they logged it in and uh, relayed it uh, to all the, the command there. And later on, our dispatch center would bring it to the base operations uh, center uh, for their information. And we did this for quite a while, but then one day a new system was introduced. And this was called electronic tracking. Uh, all we had to do then was we just called our dispatch center and we provided the information that we had over the phone and they logged it into a computer and uh, it made things much more efficient. Um, and it might not sound like a very big ordeal to most of you here, but to us in the motor pool, this made life a whole lot easier for us. Um, essentially, it was streamlining our preparation time and just made our operations to go off base uh, on these excursions much more time efficient. But there were some old timers in our shop. I'm an old timer now, by the way. <laughs> and they hated this new system. They felt like it made everything too easy. And to them, it just didn't feel like we were in the military using this new electronic system of, of doing things. They thought that you needed, as a military member, a mountain of paperwork for everything you did. They simply wanted to go back to the old paperwork system. And these old timers, they were so zealous about this, um, they voiced their opinions and they were actually able to convince other people in the shop to think like them. Like, hey, maybe we should go back to this old system of doing things. And they even went to the base commander and said, we want to reinstate the old way. The thing was, they didn't get their way. You see, the new way of doing things was much, much better. 
the old system was very antiquated and it was good for its time but things were becoming more modern and this new system had much more bells and whistles that allowed for statistics and patterns to be calculated in a matter of seconds where it used to take days doing it by hand. Um, it also allowed for the immediate transfer of information and efficiency was very critical, especially if there was a time of war. Simply put, the new way was so much better in every way. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story in particular is because the Apostle Paul faced a very similar situation when, uh, with these churches that were in Galatia. You see, the, this selected passage here is important because I believe the message is just as critical to us today as it was to them back then when he first wrote this letter. And I know that when you read this passage just on its own, uh, it might be a little confusing because you're only seeing a portion of a larger argument. Uh, it's like if you were to walk into a presentation or a lecture, stand there for about 20 seconds and listen and then walk out, thinking that you understood the whole argument that was being presented. It can be a little confusing at times. It's, it's not a good approach. So I'm going to give you some context to what these 10 verses, what they're actually talking about with Paul's argument here. And I'll tell you this. I believe the Apostle Paul was one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. Um, his life was an amazing testimony of how a person can be completely redeemed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, God used Paul in miraculous ways to bring the gospel message to the world during his day. And if, you know, if, if, if you're familiar with Paul, you know that he did a series of missionary journeys. And this is how he, he brought the gospel out to these folks and planted these churches. And it's documented in the book of Acts and through his different letters in the New Testament. And if you look in Acts 14, uh, you would see that Paul's first missionary journey was coming to an end, and he and a man named Barnabas stopped in a town called Antioch, and this is the Antioch in Syria in, in particular, and they stayed there for quite some time. And while they were there, they encountered this group of people called the Circumcision Party, and these were Jewish believers that had um, a very strong belief in their, in their Jewish law and customs. Uh, this was the same group who had criticized Peter in Acts chapter 11 when Peter ate with the Gentiles. But that gave Peter the opportunity to share the gospel and a vision that he had with these people to clarify their understanding. But the Jewish Christians here, they insisted in particular that circumcision was necessary for your salvation. You'll read that in Acts chapter 15 verse 1. Essentially, what they were saying was that in order to be a Christian, you also had to observe Jewish customs, um, especially the custom of circumcision for the men. They added to the gospel message. Uh, so the gospel wasn't just about faith anymore. It was about works as well. So after this encounter, Paul and Barnabas and a few other believers, they traveled to Jerusalem um, and they wanted to present their argument against adding anything to the gospel message. And this is in, uh, recorded in, in Acts chapter 15. Because basically, if you were adding a requirement to the gospel, um, you were saying that your salvation was dependent upon something you had to do. And that simply wasn't true. And like I said, in Acts 15, we have what's called the Council of Jerusalem. 
And it sounded like a very lively council, and Barnabas and Paul clearly made the case for the true gospel message. The council confirmed that the Jewish practice of circumcision was not necessary for salvation. And so soon afterwards, Paul departed from Jerusalem there, and he began his second missionary journey with a man named Silas this time. And eventually that brought them to the area known as Galatia. And in modern day, that would be the central part of Turkey. And you see this in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, specifically where Paul says they arrived there. And it was at this time that Paul began to plant the local churches there uh, throughout this region. And uh, even in uh, Galatians, in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul states that it was in fact an ailment some sort of uh, sickness or injury that gave him the opportunity to preach to these people in Galatia. So, you know, some pains can be a blessing in disguise. And sometime later, after Paul was no longer in Galatia, he had received word that folks there were being influenced to believe that circumcision was necessary for their salvation. And I can imagine that Paul probably just wanted to put his head through a wall. After all he had done and preached and said to these folks, he couldn't believe they were being so, so influenced by bad doctrine. So in order to correct this, this situation, Paul wrote this letter, and that's the letter of Galatians that we have today. And this letter not only serves as a form of like chastisement and a correction, but it also serves as encouragement as well. Um, and in this letter, you'll see throughout the whole letter, Paul is calling them to remain in the true gospel message, you know, not, not to be polluted with outside influences. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that, you know, Paul was extremely frustrated. Uh, if you have your Bibles open to Galatians there, flip back a page and look at chapter 1. And you'll see in verse 6, Paul says these words. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, that being Jesus. And he says, for a different gospel. He's essentially saying to these folks, he's saying, come on, people. How are you allowing yourselves to be so easily influenced by these outsiders? You were taught the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So snap out of it. Stop this foolishness. And look at the stern warning he gives in verses 8 and 9. He says these words, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Now, that's a very stern warning. And after all, Paul was not taught the gospel by men. Look in verse 12. You'll see Paul was taught the gospel through a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I'm sure that when Paul did evangelism and when he was discipling believers... He didn't make any mistakes. He pointed people to Jesus. So Paul here, he's pleading for the Galatians. You know, remember what you had been taught. He reminds them of the fact, as you, as you go through Galatians, you'll see this uh, in, in verse 13. He, you know, he says, he used to be a zealous prosecutor of the church. You know, he used to go after Christians. But when the son was revealed to him and he was called to preach, he didn't hesitate. Uh, you see that towards the end of chapter 1 there. Um, he was accepted also by the apostles of Christ to be authentic. 
And he was a trustworthy preacher of the gospel message. So, like I said, as you're going through Galatians, you'll see in chapters 2 and 3, he, he teaches about justification by faith, not by your works. And that, all, that argument all becomes apparent. And if you look specifically in chapter 3, look at verse 10. He says these words, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And what would that curse be? Well, it's simple. Uh, we can't keep the law. No matter how hard we try, we're inclined to sin. And you look down, look down in uh, verse 23, a little bit further down. He says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. This is why being under the law is often described as being enslaved by it or being under the yoke of the law. And do you know what a yoke is, by the way? It's not an egg yoke. It's a, it, a yoke is that big harness that they would put on oxen and bulls and, and large horses to usually pull a plow or a wagon or something. It was a very cumbersome thing. It wasn't comfortable. It was very heavy. So to me, that's a very fitting comparison that Paul is using when he's saying the yoke of the law. Why are you putting the selves back on you again? You know? Also, it's important to note that the law does not in any way forgive us for our past sins. It only exposes them. We are cursed under the law because we cannot please God through our own efforts. We need a Savior. Absolutely, we need a Savior. We need that forgiveness that's found in a Savior. And look at in chapter 3 again, in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And in 14, in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we may receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We receive that promise of the Spirit through faith, not through our, our deeds or our works. Jews and Gentiles together, the family of God, not under the curse of the law, but in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So after stating all of this, in this letter, um, you know, Paul continues to express his concerns because they've allowed the gospel to be polluted, if you will. Um, looking in verse, or I'm sorry, in chapter 4 now, look at verse 9. You'll see Paul ask a rhetorical question here with rather strong language to get his point across to these folks. He says, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? I mean, he's asking them to wake up, realize what you're doing here. You know, and he's not just chastising them, like I said. Um, he reminds them afterwards. Now, the intent, intimate relationship he had with these folks while he was there. Look in verse 12. He says, you did me no wrong. In verse 14, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. I mean, that's quite the compliment there, if you ask me. And it's, it's very good praise coming from the Apostle Paul. However, look down in uh, verses 19 and 20, Paul says he is now perplexed and he is troubled by what he is hearing, you know, which is that they're allowing these outsiders to come in and add something to the gospel message. 
Paul is in anguish, wishing he could be there once again with the Galatians to help correct this horrible influence they were experiencing. And that brings us to our selected passage today, the one that Micah read for us. In this section, what Paul is doing is he's referencing some historical uh, past event with, with people in, involved from the history of Israel to help make his point. Um, and the reason I gave you all that buildup, all that context here, is so it would all make better sense to you. So you have the greater argument, if you will. Um, Hagar and Sarah would have certainly helped the Jewish Christians to understand Paul's argument easier because of their cultural upbringing. And Paul here is using the imagery of children as well from these specific women uh, to represent the different covenants. You have the covenant of the law, and now you have the new covenant of grace found in Jesus Christ. And this passage begins with yet another rhetorical question from Paul. He did love his rhetorical questions when he wrote his letters. He said, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You know, what he's doing here is kind of like what he did in chapter 3. He's emphasizing the two covenants, you know, uh, the law and the grace. And this rhetorical question is to reflect back upon that. And then he says specifically in verse 24 that what he's doing here might be interpreted allegorically. And if you're not familiar, an allegory is a way of explaining a concept or an idea, some abstract notion, by using characters from a historical situation that the audience is familiar with in order to help them understand it a little better. Specifically here, the abstract idea is the two biblical covenants, the, the law and the grace. And it's explained using these, uh, these folks. Uh, Hagar and Ishmael represent the old covenant of the law. And Sarah and Isaac are representing the new covenant of grace found in Jesus Christ. So knowing that, their children, the children of these two women, have two essential specific differences I think that need to be pointed out. The first is that, you see, under the law, the status of the mother affected the status of the child. If a child was born to a slave mother, the child was considered to be a slave as well. The child would not have any kind of privilege, and nor would this child ever inherit any kind of privileges from the mother. Um, second, Ishmael was conceived through natural means, um, despite Abraham's age. It is physically possible for a man to biologically father a child, even into your 80s. However, for Isaac, you know, Isaac was something that could not have been done. It was only possible with the supernatural intervention of God. And Sarah, the free woman, you know, God intervened in her life. And that's how Isaac came about. So Ishmael corresponds with Israel under the covenant of the law. And he is described as the son of the slave woman. And by contrast, Isaac is the, is the child of the free woman. She represents the new covenant, both Jew and Gentile together in the church, free from the burden, free from the curse of the law. Now, Paul is doing this to help the Galatians to understand, because this is very important, you know, that, that Paul corrects their understanding. 
that they understand the position they're putting themselves in by insisting to their Gentile brothers that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. It's like, you know, Paul is saying to them, listen, guys, you know, look back to Abraham. Look at his situation to see what I'm describing here. And like I said, to the Jewish Christians, it should have just snapped pretty easily to them. And they would have known. They all knew Abraham, and they all knew the predicament he created for himself with Hagar. Um, and, you know, look in verse 22 there. Uh, for it's written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. You know, he, he certainly put himself in a predicament there. Um, and he says in verse 23, the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Um, this was Abraham trying to fulfill God's promise through his own efforts instead of trusting in God. He didn't want to wait. He, he, he didn't think it was going to be possible. So he, 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 he took it upon himself to try to make this promise happen. So Abraham impregnated a younger slave woman, Hagar, and Ishmael was born under her status. Hagar represents the Jerusalem under the law that was given at Mount Sinai to Moses. The yoke of slavery is upon them because they were required to keep the law. And remember, keeping the law is pretty much an impossible task for us. You know, we have a sinful nature and we're inclined to sin. And remember, under the law, sins were only covered. They were never removed. Now, Sarah, on the other hand, she represents the heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal kingdom of God. And Paul wrote that Sarah represents our mother. Uh, believers in the church are like Isaac. We're sons of the free woman. Christians are freed from the burden of the law. And forgiveness is found through the grace and, and mercy of Jesus Christ. You know, our sins are then removed. They're taken away forever. This is the contrast Paul is wanting them to know and to understand. Um, he, he's saying, Galatian believers, you need to understand what covenant you're a part of. Uh, this way, if they understood this, they could stop any further attempts to try and pollute the gospel message. And I believe that it's also the message to all of us the Holy Spirit wants us to know. Don't allow somebody to pollute the gospel message. Stay true to Jesus. You know, we're saved by his grace and his mercy alone. We can't earn our way into heaven, you know, our, and our salvation is not uh, dependent upon our obedience. If it was, I would fail. So if there's one thing I want you to remember to, from today, from this sermon in particular, I want you to remember this. The world needs a savior. We all need a savior. We need that grace and mercy from God that's only found in Christ Jesus. It is our faith, our faith that makes us part of this eternal kingdom. Not what we're doing, but our faith in Christ. So as we move through the passage here, in verse 27, you'll see, this is a quote that Paul is using here. And this is from Isaiah. It's from chapter 54, verse 1. You see, Isaiah prophesied that Jerusalem would be restored after it had been enslaved by the Babylonian Empire. And essentially, the whole point of of uh, Isaiah's prophecy was that better days are ahead, better days are coming for Israel. And this prophecy, I think it's important to note, comes immediately after chapter 53 in Isaiah, which is the, uh, the prophecy of the suffering servant being Christ himself. Now also, Isaiah used the symbolism of a woman in his prophecies 
Uh, and the illustration here emphasizes the prediction that, you know, improvement, better days were coming for Israel. And that's what Paul was trying to emphasize here. Greater existence is coming. Things might be rough now. You might be having persecution and outside influences and negativity, but remain strong. Stay focused. Keep your faith strong in Jesus. And the language here might be a little bit confusing, like I said, if you read it on its own. Uh, The barren one in this quote is symbolic of Israel, the old Jerusalem. The people who were diminished and exiled after the glory days of King David and King Solomon. But it is important to know that God still used this remnant uh, because it was through them that the Messiah came into the world. Also, the number of people who become children of God, the, the church, the number of us, both Jews and Gentiles, far outnumbers the old Israel. And referencing verse 27 again, it says, The children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Again, this is all symbolism that Paul is using as an argument for hope to encourage these Galatian believers. And even though this quotation might not directly correspond with Hagar and Sarah, it's good that he included it to emphasize the prophecy that better days are ahead. You know, he's saying to them, stay the course, have faith in God, trust in him. God is going to fulfill his promise. Now, Paul is also appealing to their reason. If you look in verse 28, he says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. It's like Paul is saying to them, Don't you see the fulfillment here right before your eyes? You're free from the burden of the law in Christ. Why would you ever want to go back to that way of living? And the Jews who were pushing this notion, these Jewish Christians, that circumcision was a requirement of salvation, they were very self-righteous and very arrogant. Um, Religious leaders in Judaism in particular, the Pharisees, were the ones who Jesus called the hypocrites. He also called them a brood of vipers. And he even warned them that they would suffer the most on the great day of reckoning. You know, Paul is saying here... Like, don't be arrogant. Don't be so arrogant to think that your salvation is dependent upon your works, like something you must do, some, some task you have to complete. We humble ourselves because we know our salvation is found in Christ, and it's through our faith in Jesus to be our Savior. He is the Savior and only Him, not ourselves. And continuing on... Um, He references the Hagar and Sarah situation again in this illustration, and he's highlighting the tension between them that's described in Genesis chapter 21. In in Genesis 21, Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Hagar, laughing mockingly at her son, Isaac. Now, this prompted Sarah to go to Abraham and to tell Abraham to cast them both out. And Paul asked this question, Verse 30, he says, what does the scripture say? He wants them to think about it. Think about, you know, what he's describing to them. And because Sarah tells Abram, Abraham to cast them out. You know, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, is not going to inherit what Isaac, the son of the free woman, is going to inherit. Now, this, this kind of casting out illustration, if you will, has three inevitable results. Uh, the first one is... The church should reject any attempts to add to the gospel message. 
Anyone who tries to do that, the church should reject that. Believers should reject that. The second is the church should reject anyone who believes they can earn their salvation. That's not the gospel message. That's a false gospel. And the third uh, inevitable result is that the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, rejects the unregenerate soul. A person who's still in sin, who has not repented and not trusted in Jesus, is not welcome into this kingdom. The casting out of Hagar and Ishmael had serious consequences in Abraham's day. And the point is for today that there is going to be an eternal separation for those who refuse the offer of grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. You know, we can't earn our way into heaven. We can't earn our way into God's good graces and get into his kingdom that way. We, we, if we think that way, we need to stop it. We need to realize we need a Savior. That's what I want you to remember for today. We need Jesus. Abraham knew God's promise, but yet he doubted. You know, he, he wanted to do it on his own through his own efforts because maybe he thought God was taking too long. However, the promise to Abraham was not fulfilled when he tried to do things on his own. You know, God's promise was fulfilled in Isaac, not in Ishmael. Now, God still made a nation from Ishmael, but the promise was not fulfilled in him. And there were greater consequences to Abraham's doubt, too, you know, and, and God blessing Isaac with a greater reward over Ishmael certainly caused a lot of contention, but it was God's plan, you know. It, it wasn't any plan of man. It wasn't Abraham's plan. So what we should take away from that is when we begin to think that we know better than God or that we can do things our, on our own better than God, we eventually, we're going to end up in sorrow, it's important to have faith in God, to trust in him, to believe in him, even in the, the worst of times and even in the, good of, the, the best of times. You see, God's plan is for our eternal salvation is through his Savior. It's not through our works. It's only through Jesus. And, you know, like I said, that's what I want you to remember from today. If anything else from this sermon... Uh, babbling on about you know works law and and grace and all that stuff i just want you to remember we need a savior salvation is not possible through our attempts to be good it's not possible through any rituals or any belief or belief in a false god we need jesus he's the one we need in our lives you know putting money in the offering plate that doesn't save you if you get baptized over here in this pool that doesn't save you the pastor, the priest, the church can't save you. Those things are just signposts. They point you to the Savior. Why do we have this cross on the wall back here? It reminds us of his sacrifice. The tree he was nailed to and the crown of thorns on his head, he paid that price for us. There's nothing we need to do but have faith in our Savior. And certainly, like, like mentioning all these things, you know, money in the plate, baptism, all these things. If these things don't save you, why on earth would these guys have thought circumcision of all things would have saved anyone? It just didn't make sense to me, and it simply was not true. Any form of legalism um, is arrogance. It's arrogance that's manifested in our sinful nature. It means we believe our redemption and salvation are possible through our own efforts. 
And we're prone to think this way. As much as we'd like to think we don't, we're not, we do kind of slide back into this from time to time. Um, you know, and, and Paul told the Galatians specifically, guys, you need to stop this. You need to stop it. And he's telling us to stop it as well. If you get off course, stop, correct yourself, focus back on Jesus. Have faith in him. Faith in Christ. That's, that's the person who saves you. His mercy allows us to be children of God. And Paul says this in, in his wonderful letter to the Ephesians. You know, it's, it's his mercy that saves us through faith so that no one may boast. We can't brag about how we got into heaven because nothing we did got us into heaven. It's our faith. And as you know, Jesus was sent to earth from heaven. He was sent at an appointed time to accomplish what needed to be done for us once and for all. You know, one day soon, Jesus is going to return. And he's going to fulfill that prophecy that he promised. And as Christians, we all should understand that we're part of a royal family. You're a child of the Most High God when you have faith in Christ. And he's promised you eternal life in his presence forever as a result. We're born again in the Spirit. You are a son or a daughter of a free woman. Don't go back to a legalistic way of mind, a mindset. That's, it's not good. We're not burdened with unnecessary requirements to keep the law. Those are just chains. That's a heavy yoke um, that people have upon them if they think it's, they're dependent upon that. If you find yourself slipping, stop it. Return. Focus back on Jesus, like I said. And I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, sometimes... I believe we underestimate the power of sentimentality and traditionalism in our lives. Um, and what I mean by this is we're often drawn to nostalgic things in our lives, usually because it reminds us of a better time. Maybe perhaps we were younger or things were less complicated in life, whatever the case might be. And you may have seen this maybe at your, at your school or at your job, um, with your family, maybe even within a local church. You may have had an idea uh, to improve something, a suggestion maybe, to help do things better. And you thought it was a great idea, but instead of praise, you were met with waves of opposition. You know, something that you didn't anticipate. This was the case in, with the, old, the, the story I told you about when I was in the military. You know, those guys wanted to go back to an earlier time, you know, um, something that was familiar to them even though it was going to be a tremendous burden on everyone. And Paul is telling us to be aware, you know, um, to be mindful that we don't need to fall back into such temptation uh, when it appears. You know, the religiosity is a magic charm to a self-righteous sinner. But to those of us who are broken, we're broken souls, and we humble ourselves before God, and we cry out to him, Christ is our answer. He's our Savior. We humble ourselves because we know we need Him. We need a Savior. And reflecting upon my own experience there, that, that, that stuff I had in the military, it made me wonder about these churches in Galatia. When they encountered these men from the circumcision party, how convincing what must their argument have been, you know? They must have played on the tradition and the sentimentality of these Jewish guys in order to win them over. To, to convince them that they needed to go back, 
you know. To me, what all they were doing was they were diminishing the grace of Jesus Christ, you know. Um, they were saying his grace is, is lesser, so our efforts can be more. It's a way of earning their way into heaven, and it's a great, great sin indeed to do such a thing. Paul wrote these words to Titus. He wrote in chapter 1, verse 10, he said, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching shameful gain and what they ought not to teach. In Galatians, he specifically refers to them as, he uses the word Judaizers. That's in chapter 2, verse 14. And that's the only mention of that particular term throughout the whole New Testament. However, the problem that these deceivers were creating is addressed in several books throughout the New Testament. Um, the dangers of false teaching and false doctrine in uh, churches back then and nowadays, it cannot be overstated. It is a true danger. And a few weeks ago, I preached at Northern Cross. Uh, it was a sermon based on Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. And I love the book of Hebrews because it, it emphasizes the superiority of Christ, especially over the old law and the old ceremonies. Um, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Um, he lived a sinless life, and he paid that price for us all. And now, as a risen Savior, he is the greater priest. He's interceding for believers before God the Father. And his righteousness is imparted upon us when we trust in him. That, to me, is a wonderful message of hope. And it's one that brings my focus back to the Savior every time. And I hope it does the same for you. But in conclusion here, I want to wrap this up. Looking at this situation with the Galatians, um, like I said, overall, what are we going to take away from this as we leave today? Well, this in particular, the danger of worldly influence is always present for Christians. We live in a world that's corrupted with sin. That's very evident to anyone. You just turn on the news or social media, you can see that everywhere. There's plenty of bad leaders, there's bad teachers, and there's bad preachers out there with all kinds of horrible doctrines that are more than able to corrupt your beliefs. You know, we must be prepared. This is a form of spiritual warfare that you're going to encounter. And don't let this bad doctrine influence you. Don't let it take your eyes off of Jesus. Stay focused on him. As believers in Christ, you know, you're, you're a child of the free woman. You're not burdened by the law. There's nothing you have to do, no works you have to accomplish to get into heaven. You just got to have faith in Jesus. We're not burdened under the law. And if you're not a believer... And if you're wondering, am I good enough to get into heaven? The answer is no, none of us are. We all need a savior. We need Jesus. He's our savior. He's done it all for us. Now we just have to repent and trust in him. So that's, like I said, that's the one thing I want you to remember. You know, I don't want you to remember me, the goofy American guy that rambled on about the law and grace and all that for half an hour. I want you to remember that we need a savior. Don't hesitate. You know, if you're, if you're contemplating it, don't wait. You know, repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus. We can't earn our way into heaven. And any, any kind of thoughts that might, that, that might pull us that way are wrong. You know, we got to trust in Christ. 
He is our Savior. He's our God. And we want to be with him forever, saved from our sins. So let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this time together. Lord, uh, we pray for your blessings on the lives of everyone that's here and everyone who's not, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for so many believers to be here. And if anyone's here is not a believer, Lord, I pray that you impart it upon them, Lord, to see the need for salvation, the need for Jesus. I pray, Lord, for, for Steve Ray and Debbie as they're traveling, Lord, and, um, and they have a busy week ahead of them. I pray for their, their trip to go well, and I pray that they'll make it back here safely, Lord. I pray also, Lord, to thank you for Mile One Mission and everyone here at Calvary Baptist Church. It's been an absolute blessing to be a part of this church the last two and a half years. I pray that we remain strong in our faith in Christ, that we remain strong, Lord, in our faith as we, we preach the Bible and preach it truthfully, uh, no matter how much it may offend the world. We thank you, Lord, so much for this wonderful music team we have, uh, the blessed music that they sing for us, and, and we're able to perform with them, Lord. Uh, we just thank you so much for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.